Well, good morning. I kind of was, uh, didn't know what was happening there. I didn't know when to come up. Yeah, but uh, hey, thank you for joining us here today. Welcome to Grace Community Church. It's great to have you here to worship. Uh, please open up your Bibles to Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 8. Chapter 8. If you are a guest today, as uh, Jeff had mentioned, a uh, special welcome. We want to just a special warm welcome to you. Thank you for checking us out. Um, my name is Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and I have the honor and the privilege to be the anchor man to this sermon series that we've been going through for the last month that Pastor Nathan has taken us through. And so this is a, a, a great honor for me. Uh, this sermon title that we're, or series that we're going through is Straight Out of Context. And so this has really been good. I've learned a lot from Pastor Nathan, and, and uh, I have the privilege to, to share with you a little bit here uh, today as well. Pastor Nathan will be back, certainly, for Easter Sunday. So he'll be here. And let me uh, just start off by saying, you know, if you believe something in Scripture, like a particular set of Scriptures or one particular Scripture, if you believe something about it, and I believe the polar opposite of what you believe. Who's right? Who's wrong? Are you right because you got a master's degree, you know, on computer science at Harvard? Um, am I wrong because I flunked out of Jethro Bodine's Hillbilly School of Tractor Driving? <laughs> Who's right? Who's wrong? Well, let me remind you what Pastor Nathan said a few weeks ago. When there are two polar opposite views on the same scripture, how do you determine who's right and who's wrong? Um, and really, he actually starts off by saying there's, there's some options. You only have three options, how you determine that, right? You are wrong. And I'm right. I like that one. <laughs> and you are right, and I am wrong, or we're both wrong, right? There's not a fourth option where we're both right on polar opposite views of the same scripture. Can't have two truths. And that's why this series of Straight Out of Context is so important to us Christians who care enough and are willing to take a little extra time to make sure that we have the context correct. For determining who is right or wrong has nothing to do with who you are or who I am. It has everything to do with God and his correct context and what he meant. In fact, Apostle Peter said it best this way. He says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of the Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. <clears throat> the whole purpose of this series is for us to, to get to know our Bibles a little bit better so that we don't take Scripture out of context. And I know the, the common reason that we take Scripture out of context is it's, it's not by, you know, being on purpose or 
our intent to do that. I mean, no one intentionally is trying to take Scripture out of context. But it's because of our tendency. It's our tendency to draw from our own time and era, our own culture, our, our own experiences. And we like to slip those right into the pages of the Bible. And because we have th- this tendency to take things out of context, I just want to remind you, remind you of what we've learned in this series. How we do things, three, we have three things that we need to do today as we look at our scripture. The first thing is we have to read the whole Bible, or the whole book. And we're not going to read the whole book. Okay, I've done that for you. Okay. <laughs> All right. So that's, that's the first thing we need to do. We need to know who wrote it, and who he wrote it to, and why it was actually written. We've got to read the whole storyline, the whole book, surrounding the chapters, the ones, and so that we know the whole storyline of that particular scripture that we're going to be talking about. So we're going to do that. And the second, the second thing that we can do is ask, what did this mean to them? The one who it was originally written to in that era, in that time frame, in that culture, and for their personal experiences. What did it mean to them? And then once we, we find out that, that particular portion of Scripture, what it was meant to them in that time frame, then we can do that third thing, and that is to ask, what does this mean for me? What does it mean for me? Does God operate the same way? Is the, these principles that, we, that are unfolding from the, the Scriptures, do they apply to us today? What lesson can I learn from this? And how can I actually apply this portion of Scripture to my life, to my culture, to my experiences? So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at a particular verse in the Bible that is often taken out of context in Christian circles. And uh, we're going to put it into the context of the whole storyline of the book of Romans and we're going to look at all the surrounding chapters, and we're going to look at the text in that chapter as well that surrounds our particular verse. So hopefully you have found chapter 8 of the book of Romans by now. And so we're going to look at it up on the screen, but stay in Romans 8 because we're going to look at other scripture there. So here is our verse. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So today our message uh, title is, For What Good Is God Working All Things Toward? And so that, that question came from this particular verse, and that is really the question for today. What is the good that God is working toward? But before we can actually answer that question, I think there's a secondary question that we need to ask ask and answer, and that is, who is the recipient to this promised good? Who are the ones God is working all things toward? Because of this verse, is so familiar to most of us that um, 
as one of the reasons why we take it out of context. Most of us have seen and heard this verse so many times in so many places, uh, on so many plaques and so many pictures. I mean, here's just a few examples. I mean, hanging on your walls and you can have a, you know, a plaque or a picture frame with this that says, all things work together for good to those who love God. We've seen it all over. In fact, here's another one. Same thing, but it's actually added a little bit of the scripture. So the two original uh, examples up there left out actually part of the scripture. This one actually added it, but look, you can't even see it. It's so small. It's so small. Well, here's the portion that's being left out right there. To those who are called according to his purpose. I mean, this is a very important part of our scripture. It allows us to actually fully understand who the recipient is to the promise. We're going to get to the promise in just a little bit, but it's important that we understand who the recipient is to this. Paul gives a full description of the recipient to the promise. This is the full description. To those who love God, to those who are called according to to his purpose. The first portion, those who love God, describes the condition of the Christian perspective. Okay, it's coming from the Christian. It's their perspective on how that recipient is looked at. The other half, those who are called according to his purpose, describes the condition of the Christian from God's perspective. There are not two separate conditions. This is one full description of the condition of a believer. You can't love God because you just decided to make a choice in your own mind to love God. You can only love God because he actually initiated our choice to, to love him according to his calling and his purpose. The divine call, in a sense means to be brought to salvation, which means we are not called according to our purpose, but to his purpose, to his purpose. In other words, it is his love for us that initiates our ability to actually reciprocate any kind of true love back to him. And it is this portion of the description those who are called according to his purpose, which is really the, the final conclusive condition of the saved. For Christians are those who are called from a condition of absolute negatives, spiritual darkness, spiritual death, and judgment to, to actually a condition of positiveness, absolute positiveness, spiritual light, spiritual life, and hope. Christians are actually called from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. So to abbreviate Paul's description of the recipient to, to just those who love God is to really to leave out God's condition how anyone becomes a Christian, which can actually cast confusion on it. To, to say that all Christians are 
is someone who actually makes this conscious choice of their own, on their own in their own conscience, to love God, which really couldn't be any farther from the truth. I mean, if you go through Scripture, and we are, I'm just gonna I'm gonna take you a fast wind right through Scripture. Okay, it's uh, and I'm just gonna share with you a little bit about how that view that that you can make your own mind up is really not from Scripture. God's doing all the action. I'll start off with just God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. God did that. He predestined us on a, as adoption, as sons, through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the, to the kind intention of His will. He freely bestowed on us the the glory of His grace. He lavished on us redemption and forgiveness. That's just a snapshot of Scripture, of what He's doing for us. So that is one way that this verse can actually be taken out of context, by removing God's half of the condition in defining the recipient. But in addition If we actually look through the rest of Scripture, of the book of Romans, we'd find this out as well. Because Paul actually starts off his his book to the the church of Rome by clarifying this same thing, who the recipients are. He uses terms like, beloved of God, called as saints for you all because of your faith. And then brothers and sisters... It's scattered throughout the whole book this way. He makes it clear. And so if you take the context of the whole storyline of the book of Romans, Paul's main purpose for writing this letter to the church of Rome, to their Christians of the church in Rome, was for them to to determine what the difference was between a Christian and a non-Christian. So you see, for the gospel of justification by faith alone was under siege by the Judaizers. They were twisting the gospel by saying that salvation, oh yeah, it was by grace, but you've got to add the law to it. It's grace plus law. So Paul, like a lawyer, pleading a case of masterfully presents the clearest picture in Scripture of what a Christian is. And so he opens up with chapter 1 and chapter 2 just by drawing a contrast of the good news Jesus saves. That's the good news, that Jesus saves us. The bad news is that sin destroys us. And then he goes into chapter 3 and 4 and talks about what the law is for. It reveals sin. And, he, you know, and then he, he contrasts that, or actually what the faith alone justifies. Okay? And then in chapter 5, life through Christ. That's where we get life. And he contrasts that, well, by death through Adam. And in chapter 6, believers are dead to sin, but made alive in Christ. Chapter 7, the believers have this conflict in them, inside the flesh against the spirit. Because we've been made alive in Christ. 
And then chapter 8, you take the whole chapter 8, it's all about deliverance and how we're vic- victorious, or victorious because of that deliverance. Our promise for our verse today is only for the Christian who love God because God first called them according to his purpose. He called them. And now we want to move on to actually clarify what the promise is. The promise of this verse. And as we do, it'll even become more clear as to who the recipient is to this promise. So we'll, now we'll look at that primary question. The primary question, what good is God working all things toward? What is it? Well, here is our verse again. God causes all things to work together for good. And again, because of how familiar this verse is and how it's found in in numerous sympathy cards and plaques and, and pictures, it's one of the most misunderstood and misapplied verses in the Bible. Here's just a couple of examples again, how it's kind of abbreviated. And I put the, the scripture up at the top, part of you know, the one we're talking about right now, the promise. And we see the difference here. God works in all for your good. He works all things out for our good. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. There's quite a difference between the Bible's version and all the, the things that we see in our Christian circles in regards to this verse. You know, because of this promise of Romans 8.28, it's often been trivialized, um, made kind of just smaller than really it is. And I want to give you an example of that. So, a common scenario of how this might play out in our lives. Imagine one day, or maybe this, you don't have to imagine, maybe this happened to you. Imagine one day you go to work, and you get to your office, and your boss is sitting in your office and says, hey, I got some bad news, I need to talk to you. And you go, oh boy. Because, hey, we had to make some cuts, I'm sorry, I've got to lay you off. Today's your last day, in fact, you need to clean out your desk. Whew. Wow. Well, does that is that good? Is that any is that good? Is that well, does the good of our verse actually mean, oh well, I I, I must think of something positive. I gotta have the right faith in God because the Bible says that all things work together for my personal good. If you take that interpretation, right? So, while you're cleaning out your desk, thinking about maybe some of the positive things that could happen as a result of what's happened to you, maybe the good God is working the all things toward is that, hey, it's, it's time to make a career change. I always wanted to go into business for myself. Maybe that's what you'd be thinking, positively. Or, maybe the good God is working toward is for me to finally retire. Yeah, I can start planning my vacations to Tahiti and Fiji and you know, Hawaii, finally. 
or maybe the good God will be working toward is just maybe a better job with better pay. And each of those things could be true. And yes, it, it's good to think positive in negative situations like this. And yes, God could actually orchestrate it through his power and providence, the things you're thinking of. But this is not the good God is working toward in this text. It's, this is not the promise. I want you to watch with me, this is a short little video clip of a very famous preacher that uh, is talking about this promise. I want to talk to you today about it's all good. Life is full of things that we don't like. Disappointments, a friend betrayed us, we didn't get the promotion. We see these things as being negative, thinking that was bad, didn't work out, my prayers weren't answered. But God won't allow a difficulty unless he's going to somehow use it for our good. This means everything that happens in life, we may not understand it, but if you'll keep the right attitude, it'll push you further into your destiny. Every closed doors, the delays, the person that did you wrong, the loan that didn't go through, God says, it's all good. I'm in control. It may not feel good, but trust me and I'll use it for your good. And when you understand this principle, life is much more freeing. You don't get upset because a coworker is playing politics, trying to keep you down. You know it's all good. God allowed it and he's going to use it. You tried, but the business didn't make it. You don't give up on your dreams. You know it's all good. It's a part of the process. Even simple things, you get stuck in traffic, you don't let it frustrate you, ruin the rest of your day. You know God is directing your steps. He may be keeping you from an accident or he may be developing patience in you. Whatever it is, keep the right perspective. It's all good. Okay, it's all good, right? Keep the right perspective. It's all good. Got to have your attitude right. It's all good. You, you have to trust God. It's all good. Well, the problem with this interpretation is if you put these scenarios that he talks about, that I just mentioned as well, into circumstances that are more difficult in life, like very tragic, like death and suicide or a child abduction and kidnapping, it's, it's easy for a person to make a connection that if God has a purpose behind minor struggles in life, that it can also suggest that God is behind evil tragedies in the world. In other words, a Christian who believes that the verse means everything for the, the Christian happens for my personal good can suggest that God to be the cause of the actual tragic evil or sin that is happening to you. By believing the promise of God working all things for our benefit, for our convenience, for our comfort in this life, also means that when there are more difficult tragedies of life, it comes hard to put them into the perspective that they're actually good. Because they're not good. 
The interpretation of Romans 8, 28 can, can lead people to believe that God is a tyrant who just doles out suffering for suffering's sake and wrongfully cast blame to God that he is somehow behind these actions of evil. When somebody is suffering and are going through a difficult trial, I know many people have good intentions. And they'll be quick to point out that of the situation, specific struggle, oh, it's, it's, it's all good. It's all good. Just trust God. Keep your right attitude. Keep the, your right perspective. My friends, we, we need to be clear. Death is not good. The, the agony of suffering is not good. The, the hurt of hardship is not good. And the primary error people tend to make with this particular verse is the belief that the promise good that is to be experienced in this life. But sadly, with the belie that belief, it becomes somewhat destructive in people's lives. Because what if there is no good that comes from this tragedy. What if? Is it because you lack the faith? You didn't trust enough? Your attitude is messed up? Listen, God's good for his children is far greater than our temporary physical circumstances here on earth. God, he intimately he knows each and every one of our needs. He cares greatly about each and every one of them. And he has made other promises in Scripture to supply those needs. But not our desires and our wants. The promise of Romans 8.28 is not about physical needs, our, our physical benefits and conveniences and comforts. I, want, I don't want you to get me wrong here, though. God can and does turn around our past sufferings and difficult situations into lessons learned, better circumstances for others and for you. The Bible is actually full of these kind of examples of sin and suffering and even death being used for the good of God's people and God's nation and God's church. But this is not what God is promising here in this text. So let's put this verse into context. Let's take some time to, to persevere and understand the word of God here. So we're going to look at it again, the promise and we see how Paul actually begins this particular verse. He begins it and says, we know. We know. What do we know? Well, when it comes to the sovereignty of God and his purpose, there is not much we know. But what has been revealed in this verse and throughout the whole book of Romans in chapter 8 we know a lot. Remember, 
Who is our recipient? Paul is addressing this letter to born-again Christians who have put their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior of their life, as their, their Savior of, from sin. And so we know that, that God is addressing Christians who have been called according to God's purpose, as Romans 8.28 indicates. And we know from the pre previous chapters in Romans 8, because I did the reading, you didn't, uh, but God is addressing one who is dead to sin and made alive in Christ. One who is actually has conflict of two natures, the, the, the spirit and the, and the flesh. We know that that's who he's addressing this to. We know also in chapter 8 that God is talking to one who has been delivered and is victorious, justified. We know also from verses 1 through 4 of our chapter 8 that God is addressing one who is free from judgment, free from the requirement of the law, which is eternal death. We're free from that requirement because of Christ's sin offering. And then we know in verses 5 through 17 of our chapter, God is speaking to one who is free from defeat by the power and control of the indwelling Holy Spirit that God gives every Christian who puts their faith in him. And then we also know in verses 31 through 39, God is communicating to one who is free from fear, knowing God is for us. Christ died for us, and God has forgiven us, and Christ intercedes and loves us. So as you can see, we do know enough. We, we know enough, and God doesn't want his children to have the slightest doubt that they belong to him. So we know a lot. We may not know everything, but we know enough that gives us confidence that if God can actually orchestrate our lives to bring salvation into it, nothing is impossible for God. Yahoo! Great! It's awesome! We know a lot. And all those descriptions of what God has done in our life to become sons of God is awesome. It takes that doubt away from us to know that. And then he goes on in our scripture. God causes all things. So the all things include the present suffering that Paul had been writing throughout the chapter in Romans 8. And I want to just take you right there. Verse 18. You should be still in chapter 8 of Romans. Look at verse 18. And I'd like to read that to you. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Skip down to verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So, let's say all things includes everything that occurs in our life. The good, the bad, the indifferent. The context actually allows 
for no limits, no restrictions, no conditions. It's, it's all things. Whether good things, bad things, neutral things, suffering, struggles, and even sin, God will use for our good. However, instead of seeing God using all things as a promise to receive a good in this life, as so many people do, the context makes it very clear all things that take place will result in an actual final good when we are glorified in heaven. Look with me at verse 18 again. And I want to read 19 with it. Okay, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Talking about the end time, right? The time when we have our glorified bodies. Skip down to verse 23. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. All those verses are talking about the rapture. The rapture, when, when Christ comes out of heaven and calls us home, we meet him in the air, we, at that point he recreates our, our bodies into eternal bodies, glorified bodies. In fact, look at verse 30 of chapter 8. Verse 30. And these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. He also glorified. I mean, it's clear. The all things in this life that are being worked toward is our future glory. It's obvious from the, the context that the working together of all things is culminating to a final end of our glorification. So what is the good? In this verse, what is the good that God is working all things toward? Well, it's certainly not in reference to receiving prosperity or peace in this life. I didn't see any of that in this chapter. But rather, to our complete conformity to the image of Christ, when we are actually raised in glory with our new eternal bodies in the presence of our Lord. Amen. Wow. Which means, as Christians, nothing can happen to you in this life. Not a single event, not an accumulation of events, nothing can happen to you in this life that can change your future glory. Whew. That is awesome. In fact, Romans 8.29 says pretty much that. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to, whom can, uh, to become conformed to the image of his Son. That's what we're looking forward to. To be conformed completely to the image of his Son. We're, we're working towards that right now. Hopefully we're getting closer to that image but we won't be complete until then. 
So what does this all mean for us? We've looked at the whole story of Romans. We know why Paul wrote it, who it was addressed to, what he meant for the first century Christians in Rome, and we have persevered to understand the context. Now we've come to the actual most important part, the, the third thing. How does this apply to you and me in 2021 at Grace Community Church? Well, the Apostle Peter gave what I believe is the most concise and clear application of Romans 8.28. See, Peter, he was writing to a group of Christians as well. And this group of Christians had been scattered abroad, what we know today as Turkey, but at uh, that time it was Asia Minor. They were being scattered abroad in that area, in that land, because of persecution. They were going through all kinds of hardships and suffering. And so they're going through the all things of life. And Peter writes to them, and he shares with them the same things that Paul did in Romans so that they would know without a doubt that God is working in them. Look at here, 1 Peter 1, 3-6. God, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Hmm. Does that look familiar? God is doing all the work again to salvation. He's taking those, all those, he took them to salvation. He's in the midst of their salvation, doing all the work there to the completion of salvation. And then Peter gives this instruction to all those who are in the midst of their salvation, going through the all things. Here's the instruction he gives that we can apply to us today as well. First he starts off with therefore. Well, that's just referring back to what we just covered, right? The all things that they're going through, the persecution, the suffering, and then the knowing of who they are in Christ and that God holds on to them. That's the therefore and then he says, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. You know what that means, prepare? In that day, in that age, they used to wear these robes, right? And so if you want to be prepared for action, you had to gird up those. You had to bring them up, tie them off, so they would free your legs so you could run. You could be prepared for action. That's what he's talking about here. Prepare your minds for action. Well, how do we do that? How do we do that as Christians in 2021 at Grace Community Church? Do you have any robes? No. Well, how do we do that? Through the truth. Prepare our minds through the truth right here. Hey, it's hard to find truth anywhere, isn't it? In this world. I mean, you can't find it on the news. You can't find it... On CNN or Fox Station, you can't find it in the schools, you can't even find it in politics. 
You can't find truth anywhere. Truth is only found in God. He is the source. He is the source of all truth, and he has actually revealed all that truth right here in the Scriptures, the Bible. So we need to prepare our minds for action, for the truth. And then he goes on to say, keep sober in spirit. What that means is just be, be clear-minded. Don't, don't, don't walk around with, in the fog. Be prepared. Use the things that you've prepared your mind for and have a clear head. You know, be ready. Don't go, oh man, it's just another day. Just going to sit back and, you know, relax a little bit. No, you need to be prepared to be, be clear, clear-minded to use the things that you've prepared your mind. You know, when I was uh, younger, I used to play a lot of baseball. And I was never good enough to be in the infield because you have to have fast reflexes. But I could run, so they stuck me in the outfield. And, you know, when I was in the outfield, every time I, I prepared in my mind what was going to happen, depending on the, on the situation, how many outs there were, how many people on base, what inning it was, I prepared in my mind the, the playbook. Trying, trying to figure out, okay, what should I do if that ball is hit to me? And, and so I'm thinking that. I'm clear-minded, waiting for that ball to, to come to me. And if it does, I know exactly where I'm going to go. I'm going to go to second base or third base, home plate, whatever. Clear-minded. Keep sober in the spirit by doing the truth, by doing this truth, by being obedient to this truth. And you know, God has given us one of the greatest things ever to help us, and that is to the encouragement and support and fellowship of a church body. That's why you're here today, to worship together, to be encouraged with this truth so that you can be sober in spirit, clear-minded to apply this truth in your life. And the third and final thing, he says, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope completely on that time, on the revelation when Christ is going to come back at the rapture. Set your mind on that. And the, you know, the only way I can actually show you how to do this in this, in this world right now is with a picture. Something that you should not be doing, okay? And this is it. Don't put the cart before the horse. Don't put the cart before the horse. The out-of-context teaching of Romans 8.28 is persuading Christians to set their hope partially on the revelation of Jesus Christ and partially on the, thing, the temporary things of this world. Peter says not to set your hope partially on the glory revealing Christ, but completely. And the problem with the common interpretation of Romans 8.28 is that they're, they're telling everyone to put your hope in this world. It's all good. It's all good. If you have the right perspective and you have the, the, the right, you know, just attitude and if you have enough faith and trust 
That's putting the cart before the horse. But if you're preparing your mind and you're keeping sober in the spirit, you can turn around this picture very easily to look like this. Yeah. Because you set your hope completely on the revelation of Jesus Christ, not on the temporary things of this world. My friends, the only way we can know the all things of your life is good is when we're able to actually look back, to look back at them. And when we look back at them, what are we doing? We're praising God. We're worshiping Him for what He took us through and to where we are today because of that. But some of us, if not many, may never have the chance, this side of eternity, to look back and have that perspective of seeing the all things that God has caused for good. We may not have that chance. However, you certainly will when your salvation is made complete. We'll all be able to be in heaven with Christ, with our new glorified bodies, looking back at all those things that happened and the good that was happening in them. And that is the promise of Romans 8.28. And remember, the promise is only to those who love God and to those who are actually called according to His purpose. So if you're here today and you're not sure that this promise applies to you of Romans 8.28, then I would encourage you to acknowledge your sin before a righteous and perfect and holy God. Have you ever thought something you shouldn't have thought, said something you shouldn't have said, and did something you shouldn't have done? Of course, we've all done that. Confess that, that's sin. Confess that before our righteous and loving God who came to earth in the flesh, in the person of his Son, and who shed his perfect blood. He never sinned once on Calvary for your sins and mine. And if you believe that, if you believe Jesus paid the actual penalty for your sin by dying on that cross and then being dead three days in that tomb, and on that third day rising from the grave to prove that he had power over death, that he was God in the flesh. If you believe that, take Jesus up on his other promise then. This promise of 828 is not for you right now. It can be. Take him up on another promise. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus himself said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. He also, Jesus said in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. And the apostle John opens up his gospel with an altar call in John 1, 12. He said, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right 
to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So if you have any doubt in your heart and your mind that this promise of 828 is not yours, open up the door of your heart, let Jesus in. Believe what he says, and then receive to receive it, receive that gift of grace to be yours personally. I'd like to ask right now for all of you just to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'll give you an opportunity to really kind of be just you and God. Close out. There's nobody next to you right now. At least you don't see them. And this will be the opportunity for you to if you really, in the quietness of your own heart and your own mind, understand that you want this promise, and, and so now you're claiming the promise that Jesus himself said by opening up your heart, by opening up and just saying, I believe and receive, then just repeat the simple words. There's nothing special about these words. Just say, Lord, I, I open up my heart to you. I hear your voice. I believe. Believe what you said, that you died for my sins personally. I believe that. And I do want to, to know you and to make you Lord of my life. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. And if maybe you're here today and as a Christian, you know, you know that you are a Christian, but maybe you've kind of got distracted in life kind of putting your thoughts and your mind partially on the, the things of this temporary world and not completely on the revelation of Jesus Christ at the end times. I would just go to God as well. Just say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for being distracted with the things of this world. I want to I focus on you completely. Help me to do that, Lord. Lord, I want to thank you as well for just the, the time as a church body to be able to come together to open up your word of truth and to be encouraged as we are today because of that. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.